0: Stretch on an open request line on K. Oakland in Burke Burnett, Texas. Red River Rock and Roll from the tip top of the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. class of the greatest movie ever made, the 1973 Tobey Hooper classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives... They could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I have
2: awesome nightmares. And and um, yeah, I'm sure the I'm sure it feeds my work. I mean, I I had a dream, um, a dream the other night about instead of making a horror film, creating this kind of purple blood goo that you stick in your your head, and from that you get the amount of horror that uh,
0: the recommended dosage anyone ever dare want or need. Good morning, everybody. Good morning,
2: congregates. We'd like to welcome you to Sunday services. We'd like to ask you to be generous as the basket gets passed around and that we are here to praise Toby Hooper, not Barry.
0: Welcome to our very special live tribute to Toby Hooper. My name is Patrick Bromley. Uh, Toby Hooper is my favorite director. I am joined for the first hour of our special tribute by F This Movie's own J.B., contain your enthusiasm welcome sir good morning Um, it's too early well for some people it's very early yeah Uh, we're doing okay over here but um, a year ago today Toby Hooper passed away and it was a surprise and a bummer for many of us uh, myself included and I say that just as somebody who is a fan not someone who Knew him, worked with him. We will hear from some of those people later on today. We have a, a pretty incredible lineup of guests to come on and talk about Toby Hooper and his movies and his work, and I'm really excited about it. I was trying to think of some way to honor his memory. Um, and it started, I just was looking around at movie theaters around Chicago. I wanted to rent out a movie theater and just watch Toby Hooper movies with a bunch of people all day and invite anybody who wanted to make the trip and come watch Toby Hooper movies and no movie theaters that I could afford would get back to me. So then it was back to the drawing board.
2: I vaguely remember some of those discussions. Yeah. But because I'm never really paying attention, it's (laughs) only now that you say that that i think oh that's what they were that's what that was for that's what all that was about
0: so then it became something else and it was well what if we did a a broadcast to celebrate his memory and it is a testament to his his uh, uh the effect he had on on filmmaking and how beloved he was that anybody i asked said yes immediately whatever i can do to be a part of it um People were approaching me saying, hey, can I be a part of this somehow? I would love to celebrate him. And so uh, he's just a a special guy. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about why. Um, We're going to start out, though, talking about Life Force. You mean space vampires? Space vampires. Um,
2: This week, I've been thinking a lot about Toby Hooper. uh, Because obviously I knew that this was coming on Sunday. And because I never met him... Because he didn't do shows, did he? Did he? He might have.
0: N- nothing out Certainly here. Certainly not around yeah.
2: here. Um, what I went to is all of those documentaries about seventies horror that we're always screaming about. Um, the American Nightmare and Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, and um, the big one that you saw in my class originally. That I'm. I i, I can not remember the name of it. of it. But you know, people think
0: it's strange that there's a lot of.
2: There's a lot of those documentaries. <clears throat> and he's on some of them. And when you watch, you see that he's part of this generation that was Carpenter and Hooper and Romero and Cronenberg and Stuart Gordon. And sort of by default, John Landis, because uh, even West though Craven. Landis, I, I don't want to leave out West Craven, no. even though Landis pretty much <clears throat> only makes two horror films and thriller He's such an engaging rank and tour, and he knows the other guy so well that he just shows up on all these documentaries. And when you watch the documentaries, clearly you might be watching this director's public persona, but I think you can kind of ferret out what they're like. Um, Landis is the clown. Um, Joe Dante's your best friend. Cronenberg is very intellectual. Romero's the philosopher. And so on and so on. And I was trying to come up with a way of describing Toby Hooper. And I'm watching the uh, special features on Life Force. I'm sorry, Space Vampires. And uh, (laughs) Matilda May talks briefly about Hooper and says she was surprised that he was such an introvert. And that he was very actually shy. And then I thought about that in terms of his documentary appearances and... He's the one in those documentaries who has a lot of interesting things to say, but he seems reluctant. He's the most Mm soft-spoken of everyone. Mm -hmm. And I keep going back to the scene, and I wish I could tell you which of these eight documentaries this is from. He said one of the – a part of the genesis of Texas Chainsaw was that he was in a Sears store. You know the story. Oh, yeah. And um, it was very crowded. And he didn't like crowds. And he was in the hardware department. And he started looking at this chainsaw and thinking, you know, I could clear this place out pretty quick with that chainsaw. Yeah. And I was sort of excessively ruminating about that earlier this week. And I was thinking, well, isn't it great that he didn't do that? Because then he would be a sociopath and right. go to prison. Right. But that he made this movie. Yeah. Um, that all of us love and sort of channeled those impulses. Um very thoughtful but also very close to the vest very not effusive
0: no not at all and and just had a way of thinking that isn't like anybody else and that's part of what draws me to his work so much is that he just comes at everything from a place that you can't even totally wrap your head around how he got there i mean we were playing so at the opening of the show we played some clips and and uh there was a short piece of an interview that Mick Harris had done on Post Mortem with Toby Hooper, and he gets to this line about, you know, I had this dream the other night that there was this purple goo, and as soon as he said purple goo, you started cackling because, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, that's what Toby Hooper's dreaming about.
2: It's so great, and I would also <laughs> extend what you just said about Toby Hooper to his films that they're not easy. No, They're not comforting. They're not – they don't come to you. They ask that you come to them in some way.
0: This is something that I'm sure I'm going to repeat to everyone. So you're lucky because you're here first. And so (laughs) this is uh, (laughs) – sorry, everyone who's listening because I'm sure every new person I talk to, this is going to come up. But I don't know that I've ever really loved a Toby Hooper movie the first time I saw it. Because I just I don't even know if it's now I can um, if if he had made a, if he made a movie that I had never seen and I found it all of a sudden like uh, he did a TV movie in the late '90s called the Apartment Complex and it's very hard to find and I found a copy and I saw it within the last year and I got it right away because I know enough of him and enough of his work to understand it but you know I grew up seeing a lot of these movies and just kind of flummoxed by them because they are challenging because they don't follow traditional rules at all.
2: And I had touched upon this last week. I had a column about Texas Chainsaw Massacre where I finally said, damn it, I'm going to write about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm not the only one who's pointed this out. The first time you see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it overwhelms you. Yes. And it is terrifying in a lot of different ways. But it's only when you go back and revisit it maybe several times, that you realize the game that's actually being played there that, like a funhouse, <laughs> it's actually a fun scare
0: disguised as something you can't take. Oh, I don't even know if I agree with that. In, in the case of Texas Chainsaw. And
2: then, at the end, we get what several people have, have said is their favorite movie ending of all time. This final image... That's not fun. Right. And that you can't get out of your head no matter how hard you try. Yeah. Um, I thought the same thing about Life Force, uh, re-watching it last night, because obviously the great meta-narrative is that Life Force was not a success. And I would argue that there are many, many films for which that's a badge of honor. Wizard of Oz yep. was not a success upon its original release. It's a Wonderful Life, very famously Blade <laughs> Runner. And I think... And Life Force, those films have something in common. It's very hard to get the whole thing from one sitting. You don't watch it the first time and go, wow, and walk out of the theater and tell all of your friends to see it. Right. That there's so much going on, that Life Force is so much the thinking person's vampire film, or whatever you want to call it, that it's a problem. I also discovered that the big cliche about John Carpenter's The Thing is that it, too... Let's lump that in with the other films. That The Thing comes out the same summer as (laughs) E.T. Yes. Discuss. The rest of that (laughs) writes itself. I discovered that Life Force, I think you knew this, came out the same day as fucking Cocoon. Yeah. So, American public, here's your choice. Two American science fiction
0: films. When you're old gentle aliens are going to come to earth and take you and you get to live in peace forever. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And you're with all your loved ones or <laughs> right? a very sexy, dangerous woman
2: is going to make all hell break loose. Right. Cause Literally an apocalypse on earth. Break loose. And <coughs> I'm not here to shit on cocoon. I'm not.
0: That's next week's live show. <laughs>
2: But at the very least, we know that Life Force and Cocoon are very different movies, and when we ask people to vote at the box office, I think usually we can predict how that comes out. Because I think beginning with that 70 millimeter screening that we saw, um, it wasn't made in 70 millimeter, but it was blown up to 70 millimeter, yeah. and it was dis- it was displayed, it was shown in 70 millimeter when it first came out. Hooper himself said, "This is my chance to do a 70 millimeter." Hammer film, that's his famous quote. And uh, the Music Box Theater around here, the happiest place on earth, does a 70mm film festival. We dutifully went to see it in 70mm. And that was the first time that I sort of sat back and I said, I don't understand how this cannot be a terrific success. I do not understand how this did not do more business I think in a,
0: 1985. I think in the case of a lot of his movies, and not all of them because Texas Chainsaw was... Very successful in its time. Poltergeist was very successful in its time. Um, I think he made other movies that the world had to catch up to. I think Life Force is a movie that the world had to catch up to. I think we can watch Life Force now and appreciate everything about it. I think in 1985, that was harder to do.
2: Is the accepted wisdom now... I'm somewhat cut off from the accepted wisdom. Is the accepted wisdom now is that it's great and everyone now recognizes...
0: I think so. And I hope so. Um, in, in the circles in which I keep, yes, but that's because I have boxed out everyone (laughs) who talks shit about Toby Hooper. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are like, what? No, that's nonsense. That's crazy. But it is finally beloved. And of course, you know, that is the test of any movie. Nobody cares now that it bombed in 1985. But when you think about, I mean, he was coming off a controversy. He was making the movie for Canon who were already not respected Um, I think there were a lot of things that created a narrative. You know, I was too young in 1985 to really remember, but I think a narrative was shaped around Life Force probably by a lot of critics um, who automatically just said, well, it's schlock. No, I read some of the original reviews and it
2: was no. Although, oddly enough, even some of the original reviews insulted the film, but in a very backhanded way. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of them said this is silly trash, and yet it's still interesting. Uh, one of the few critics in 1985 who actually championed the film was Gene Siskel. Gene Siskel loved it. Thank you, Gene Siskel, and said it was a guilty
0: pleasure. No,
2: nope. I, I saw it. The I saw it the day it was released. Okay. I
0: still remember going. You went with that over Cocoon, is what you're saying. I wouldn't see
2: Cocoon for quite a long time because um, that was the year I started teaching and I went to see it on opening night and it was literally too much to process. My first reaction was, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck did I just see? It's one movie and then it turns into a completely different movie. I'd say probably it, three or four times. Yes, yeah said it's very you could break yeah. it up into pieces. Um, but it's so great. I don't have this reaction very often, but I watched it again last night, very late. And the minute it was over, I said to myself, I could watch that again.
0: 100%. Right now. Yes. Which I don't often do. I think there are so many cues in the movie as to what Toby Hooper was doing. And I think that was part of the, part of what I think he faced his entire career is that so many of his movies are much funnier and more self-aware than I think people ever gave him credit for. They thought... That the things that he did were by mistake or as a result of bad decision making, um, poor choices or whatever, and not understanding like, no, 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 that's – this is the movie he was trying to make. He didn't make this accidentally. A perfect
2: example of that. And this has something to do with that famous music box crowd that we've talked about. There's a scene where one of the guys in charge is watching on a security monitor Mm -hmm. in his office something going on that's very, very bad. And he runs out of his office and he runs down the hall and he has to get to this lab that's being guarded because something very, very bad is happening. And then there's a series of glass doors he has to go through, kind of like levels of security you look like you don't know the show. The no, I, I know exactly what you're okay. talking about. And at the music box, that gets a big laugh because it's almost like he's setting it up as a joke. How many of these doors do I have to go through to finally get to the lab? But watching it again last night, I was thinking, A, yeah, par- partly. I think Toby Hooper's in on the joke. But the larger joke is that it's very frustrating because it's keeping him from getting to right. the lab where he can fix things or help things but also he's doing that to set the scene for a later scene where it's important that we know that that's the series of doors we have to go through right so it's very very clever and the audience that night was like isn't it silly (laughs) that there's all these glass doors he has to go through right
0: Um, almost every one of frank finlay's lines of dialogue to me is a great indicator of here's what this movie is um
2: but I think I think Finley's in on the joke. As that's what actor, I'm saying. Finley knows exactly
0: That's why what, I'm saying and, he knows uh, what movie he's in. And and that's why I'm saying every one of his lines is an indication of this is the movie that you're watching. This isn't some accident. I mean his whole like and totally dangerous like that the movie <laughs> that's the movie right there. Or or um when... <laughs> Oh shoot, I can't remember his name and we're live, so I apologize when he sits down and says, like, that's okay. I'm a natural voyeur. Just every one of these beats that's like it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be over the top. This isn't a comedy, but it is a movie that knows exactly what it is. And um it's the the structure of it is so bizarre. Yes. I was uh and this'll come up again, but I was re listening to um our next, no, not our next guest. Two guests from now, Jared Rivett, who was a, is a screenwriter who's worked with Toby, and he went on the Shockwaves podcast um, right after Toby passed away, and they talked about him. and He was talking about Life Force and pointing out that the movie has this insane insane structure where Stephen Railsback is introduced as the main character, yes, and then disappears <laughs> for the next third of the movie, and then pops back in and like, no, actually, I am the lead, and it's it's bananas.
2: Well, I wanted to talk about the narrative because I thought it was so interesting last night. Because, again, I've seen this film several times and I'm sort of looking at it in different ways. And it's so odd that we begin the film with them rescuing these things. And then, as you said, we leave space. And now we're somewhere else. And it's it's a completely different mm-hmm. place. And we've, we're have we in England now and we've forgotten about Steve Railsback. And then... Once he finds his way to Earth in that little escape pod, send him to England. And in the very next scene, man, talking about an elision. He's in his uniform. He's in England. There's no reason to show him getting on the plane. And then the second half of the outer space story is told by Steve Railsback in a flashback. Mm -hmm. And that, I love that, because very few films try to play that game. But what I was even more impressed by was, we get the space story. Now we're not in space. Now we don't know where Steve Railsback is. 20 more minutes, here's Steve Railsback. He's going to tell us the rest of the story that I started at the beginning of the film. Then 20 minutes later, Railsback speaks up again and tells us, that's not exactly right,
0: right. Well, the, the, actually, the
2: flashback right. is denied. My God, <laughs> that's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Wow, it's a uh, Rashaman in outer space. Um, here's something else I thought. I'm watching Life Force, and I'm trying to sort of see it in terms of narrative, and I'm trying to see it in terms of, uh, you know, larger archetypes. And I'm wondering if, if uh, Hooper was aware of this in a very real way. Life Force takes a lot of things from Turner... Every time I see TCM, I I say Turner Classic (laughs) Movies. Oh, my God. Turner Classic Uh. Movies. Change your name from Texas Chainsaw. Um, A group of wandering people pick up a hitchhiker... Oh, very nice. ...who bodes poorly... Yeah. ...and then go to a place where all hell breaks loose. But here's where it's flipped. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the... um, A hitchhiker is male, Mm -hmm. and the victim is female, and all of the bad people in the house are male. So that's flipped. Mm -hmm. In um, Life Force, the hitchhiker, so to speak, Matilda May, is female, and I don't know, just judging from the London streets, most of the victims are male. It's almost like a conscious Mm -hmm. inversion of Texas Chainsaw Mm -hmm. Massacre. (laughs) Um, And then I thought, well, Dan O'Banion worked on the Life Force script and then directed Return of the Living Dead, which is what Hooper was going to direct before he took Life Force. Right. And Dan O'Banion also famously wrote Alien. Right. And I'm thinking, it's very interesting if you compare Life Force to Alien, because think about it, the group of astronauts come upon the mysterious thing, Mm -hmm. and in Alien... The movie is based on them picking it up, and then it kills the crew. Mm-hmm. In Life Force, the entire plot of Alien is a flashback. Right, that's right. There.
0: <laughs> Here's what happens if we brought the Alien back to Earth. Which I am not. I have not
2: memorized the Alien films. In all of the Alien films,
0: they never make it to Earth. So, unless you count uh, like Alien versus Predator,
2: why hasn't Twentieth Century Fox picked up on that? You know what. It's fine. <laughs> they can call it Alien World.
0: It's I. They've talked many times, I think, and they about... And bring
2: in Jeff Goldblum. It's now an alien world. <laughs> um, the other thing I thought, and at this point, everyone listening to us can slap their foreheads in disgust, because JB taught high school film study for way too long, and he's pretentious as fuck. I'm looking at Life Force, and I'm thinking about... Uh, Toby makes Texas Chainsaw, and it's fantastically popular, and then he makes Poltergeist, which is a big hit. And then he's um, courted by Golan Globus with uh, canon, and he's convinced to come aboard and make Life Force. And one thing I loved in the supplementary materials for Life Force is Toby said the key was uh, Golan and Globus loved movies. Mm -hmm. They were showmen. They weren't businessmen. They truly liked to make movies. But I'm watching Life Force, and I'm wondering if one of the things, maybe even subconsciously, that attracted Hooper to the project is, um, it's an allegory for Hooper's time in Hollywood. Hooper is Steve Railsback. Right. They're both from Texas. Right. And he's the astronaut who encounters these strange, beautiful, glamorous beings mm-hmm. and is seduced by them.
0: Into something
2: that might not be the best thing for him.
0: What do you mm. think? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's maybe. Cool. I, I don't know well enough firsthand, but I feel like at the time that he's making Life Force, well, when I mean, he's I know. making
2: Life Force, he's really at the top of his game. Well, that's in what, in what I'm saying. So I don't
0: know how. Jaded he is oh, that about he, Hollywood. Yet he would yet. see he
2: that he would be able to see the self destruction inherent in.
0: Yeah, that life force, it, that reading suggests something that's very very critical of Hollywood. And maybe he wasn't there yet, but I mean he had been through a tough experience with poltergeist that it all happened. You know, um, the more I think about it, the more I like it. I like Especially it. the the I like upper,
2: it. uh rails back uh, comparison.
0: Steve Railsback's performance is interesting, uh, and our friend and uh, podcast host Adam Risky, who will be on later today, I think when we saw that screening at the Music Box, turned to me and said, "It seems like Steven Railsback's biggest performance note was that he's hard of hearing because he tends to just shout a lot of his lines." And you know, okay,
2: that that's true, but and. I love Steve Railsback in anything, and I'll be a Steve Railsback apologist till the day I die. He even alludes to this in the special features on the disc. He got noticed for playing Charles Manson in Helter Skelter. And have you seen that lately? I've never seen it. I've seen it once when it originally played on television, when it premiered. And I can't get that performance out of my head, that weird little Charlie Manson voice he came up with. And again, he's not the only actor this has happened to. I think that typecast him mm-hmm. in a very real way, on the special features, he said he's offered every killer part under the sun, and he didn't want to do that, but he is rewarded for going over the top.
0: In In this movie or all the time?
2: All the time. Okay, got it. Because if you look at it, he's always the guy on the edge yeah the guy who's being pushed over the cliff the guy who doesn't know what's going on. I think you can really compare this performance to the stunt man yeah. where he's basically hitting the same notes the the shouting doesn't bother me I think he's really good at confused desperation. in fact at the end, I'm guessing part of this is the makeup he just he looks like shit. <laughs> Um, it's like you want to take him aside, buddy. You got to break he's, up. He's being drained of his life. For you got to break up with her, buddy. She's not good. And look, She's I don't no want to. I don't want to be the one, but you have to be the friend. To well, because take then, him aside. but then it's
0: awkward because if you talk shit about her and then they get back together, oh, it's like yeah, oh, I it. called her a space vampire uh, and now I got to see her at Christmas. No, it's super awkward. Um, I mean, he's one in a long line of Toby Hooper protagonists who goes nuts you know that's essentially the the through line of every one of his main characters sort of loses their mind yeah. by the end of the movie um, this is I would say I was watching rewatching, Eaten Alive yesterday and Eaten Alive is a sort of rare Toby Hooper movie to feature kind of explicit sexuality in a lot of ways he's not has never seemed particularly interested in sex in film um I don't know how much of that in Eaten Alive was him, how much of it was you know, because people took over and shot yeah. some stuff. I, I don't I honestly have no idea. Um and I thought to myself, Oh yeah, he doesn't really do sex in movies. And then I'm like, oh wait, Life Force is very much about sex. Yes. And Matilda May's performance
2: is the eight hundred pound elephant in the room. She alludes to this on the special yeah. features. And really shows how brilliant the script was and how brilliant Toby Hooper was because what are what is this 35 40 years later that's what people still want to talk about Matilda yeah this movie has a lot of nudity in it and I don't mean to be sexist she is just one of the most beautiful women to ever walk the earth which I think <clears throat> is part of the film's construct That... We have a big problem with sex and sexuality. And in a weird way, the way Sam Raimi uses humor, I think Hooper is using her to, to throw us off, to, to, to lead us down one path. Because I think it's really interesting what you said, that Hooper's not really interested in sex, because though you can say, well, John, she's naked a lot, so it's sexy. It's not. It's odd. The way she's portrayed in the film is
0: clinical.
2: Every time she grabs a guy, I'm not sitting there saying, this is hot.
0: No, not at all.
2: It's presented in a disturbing, it's almost a rebuke to any 12-year-old boy who watches this film uh, to to gain a sexual
0: fantasy or something. It's,
2: it's, It's sexual. My God, how can it not be?
0: Overwhelmingly sexual.
2: But I don't think it's sexy. In fact, one thing I noticed last night that I thought was so funny. um, Spoiler alert for life. Yeah, listen. um, He has a dream where she appears and sort of, uh, not that it's a shot cut, but she very quickly moves forward on him. And uh, she's wearing this delightful cloak or something. And I think even when it's going on, we know it's a dream. If we've been paying attention... We're sitting there saying, I, I don't think this is actually happening. This is a dream. And it turns out to be a dream. But in the dream, the first thing she does is take his shirt off. Yeah. And it's it's just so odd. I mean, there's your 12-year-old fantasy. She appears to me in my bedroom, and she's bigger than life. And the first thing she does
0: is take my shirt off because it's getting hot in here. And this shirt is chafing me. I think I, I agree with you that she is not necessarily presented, mm, I don't want to say sexually. I mean, she's certainly presented as an object of desire. But yeah. because that's the the reason I say that the movie is sort of very concerned with sex is in terms of the whole plight of the Steve Railsback back character, which is like, I just can't quit her. And, <laughs> right? And it's he too even good. Says
2: it was, I'm paraphrasing horribly, it was like, the most erotic attraction I've ever felt. Right. But more so, but he says it was bad or scary or he knew in the back of his right. mind that this wasn't great. Um, this leads to another great line you were talking about, uh, Finley's performance. I don't think a naked woman <laughs> is going to leave this facility. And then the next Cut. thing we see right. is a naked woman leaving the facility. Every time
0: Finley has to um, explain some of the rules it cracks me up and again some of it i'm sure was just by necessity because this movie was sort of inventing a new mythology or i i have not read um colin wilson's space vampires so i don't know for sure how much of it comes from space vampires how much the screenplay borrowed but um he's got you know the rules about only the the original three can do this right or the my favorite is when he's talking about like the old fashioned way, of steel rod not through the heart but through the energy center right below the heart as though that's a thing that we all oh the energy center right below the heart that thing that we all know you know your
2: energy center every year when you go to the doctor for your checkup it's I'm going to listen to your heart it's a little embarrassing now we have to check but your energy you center check your energy center
0: it's the best. Um
2: Whenever Frank Finley says, only the original three, (laughs) I picture him directly speaking to the comic book guy in the original audience. Excuse me, (laughs) I believe there's an inconsistency in the way the vampires are
0: shown. Worst life force (laughs) ever. There's so much in this movie that I love. But um, if I was ever going to make like a, I'm not a, you know, a skilled video editor, but if I was ever going to make like a Toby Hooper supercut. The image that I would perhaps begin the supercut with one of what I think is the most sort of Toby Hooper images in any movie ever is the last thing we see of Frank Finley where he gets uh shot yeah. and he drops to the floor and his face is sort of doing this weird thing where he's sort of transforming and he says, here I go. And the life force shoots out of his back and through the window and it's so heightened and just crazy and not anything you've ever seen in a movie before that every time I get to that moment I'm like well this whole movie I love the movie but this entire movie is worth it just for that beat
2: Um, if you watch the special features uh, one quibble is they suffer from there's only so much footage we have from when the film was actually being made. So now when we go back and make these little mini-documentaries, for the, we see the same thing over and over. Um, I think six separate times you see Hooper explaining to the crew, then the vampiric bolt (laughs) is going to come through, and I I don't want anything to distract from the vampiric bolt, and it's going to hit that bus, and then a column of fire is going to go up 30 feet. Right. Over and over and over. So I don't know, that might be... The image for me but at this point we have to discuss something very important which might make all the listeners think i'm a dope okay i'm willing to take that chance all right so we learn that this magical sword <laughs> that's made out of some special material yep. can be thrust through the energy center right and dispatch the vampire Correct. because near the end um Uh, Colin Firth does it to one of the males after he transforms into that shrieking beast, and that seems to work. And then, hand me the sword! I can't reach you! I'm up here! Hand me the sword! I need the sword! I'm paraphrasing. Steve Railsback thrusts the sword through the Matilda May character and himself. Right. And this is sort of right as they're about to make their exit. And... It seems to have some effect on both of them. She has a reaction. He has a reaction. And then something happens on Earth that shows us that it's going to be okay. Right. And then they get taken up. What does that mean? What does the final shot mean? Is he leaving it open-ended? I thought that much like the other two we've seen get dispatched, he was trying to kill her. He does. So when they get taken up, they're both essentially dead. Correct. But then when they re-enter the spacecraft, the souls of the sucked-out people, <laughs> yeah, that were blue,
0: yeah,
2: ooh, because Finley explains that too. Oh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. explains what the little the little bits of blue light are that briefly turn red, turn blue again. So, again, I'm I'm not stupid. No, I don't think I'm stupid. No. When I first saw it, I was like, he won. He dispatched the evil and sacrificed himself. Yes. But watching it last night, I'm not so sure. And I'm wondering if somebody wanted to keep it. It's not exactly, well, how could you miss that? It's so obvious. It's not like they cut back to Earth and one of the scientists left alive. Okay, let me tell you what, what just happened. Because... I was wondering if you would be demented to think that whereas Steve Railsback vanquished the evil in the energy center to make everything on Earth okay, that up on the spaceship he and Matilda May are still alive in some way and are destined to be together forever. Is that a reading of that <laughs> last shot that makes sense?
0: I don't know. I don't I never read that I never read them as still being alive. I read them dying together in sort of a Romeo and Juliet romantic okay. way, well, uh, as romantic as too. you want to be. I do think, you know, A, Hooper doesn't blow up the ship, which I appreciate. We don't get the wide shot of then the ship exploding. We just, it just flies away.
2: So in some way, the ship slowly flying away, because this is the 80s and it's a special effect and it moves slow, is very similar to Leatherface dancing with the chainsaw right, right. at the end, because right. uh, folks don't don't get too complacent because it's still up there. And yeah, Halley's Comet will be back in seventy six years,
0: <laughs> but none of the original three <clears throat> are alive in theory. So again, when the sword
2: is thrust through, yes, both of them have reactions that tell us this is not good for either of them. <laughs> this is a right. bad thing.
0: Right, but.
2: Once we leave those two shots, the rest of it is maddeningly inconclusive, I think. Or am I, I just, am I, now- I,
0: I I literally have always just read it, oops, sorry, as them being dead and, and the threat is over and flies away. But I do so appreciate the fact that it cuts back to London and we don't get all of the life force re entering all of the people. Right. Instead, no, the that, steps are littered with right, dead right. bodies and it's like, yeah, this happened. All these people are dead.
2: And again, I don't mean to annoy you, although too late. Um, once the sword is thrust through yes. and the evil has been vanquished through the energy center, why then is there any reason for them to be taken up?
0: Uh, listen, if, I, I don't know. Do you see? <laughs> sure.
2: I, I have always accepted the ending the way you just said. I've always... Yeah, right. Okay.
0: Right. It seems clear. Until right.
2: last night. <laughs> Maybe it was the lateness of the hour.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I uh, this is going to sound like a cop out, and I'll apologize for saying in advance. In, ad- in advance, but I had this thought watching "Eaten Alive" yesterday, and we'll talk about "Eaten Alive" in a little bit. And uh, I'll repeat this because that's what I'm going to do today: is repeat stuff. Um, one of the things that I so enjoy about Toby Hooper's work is that it's really always meant to be felt and experienced and not always thought about. I think you can pull it apart and say, okay, how does this shot affect me in this way? How does this cut do this? But I was listening to the dialogue in *Eaten Alive and I said, if you wrote this out, this is gibberish, but it doesn't matter because it, there's a cumulative effect. It's meant to be experienced emotionally and sort of viscerally, right. and
2: not intellectually. Right. That being said, and not to apologize for any of my quibbling, the more I thought about it last night, the more I liked the fact that one might see the ending of Life Force Perhaps. as more open-ended. Sure. That's all I'm saying, that it might be more open-ended than
0: Again, I think the very fact that the ship doesn't explode is more open-ended than I'm used to in Hollywood movies because in every other movie we would get that shot just because, hey, let's blow up the model. That'll look cool. And at
2: the very least, like you said, Romeo and Juliet, they're united forever. Exactly. Up there on the ship. Right literally united by a
0: metal <laughs> there's no pole right? that's holding them together they have to they literally have to go by, everywhere together by the stomachs. it's really hard to get dressed they have it's, the pole going through both of them it's a closeness issue <laughs> um and it's it's interesting too that that is i guess sort of a blessing and a curse i mean on the one hand you're attached to matilda may for the rest of your life on the other hand like all he wanted was to get away from her and that that is sort of the penance that he has to pay for what he did to the crew.
2: Right. And the one thing I would say is it's, it would be very hard to watch life force in any way, interpreting it anyway, and not see, um, Steve Railsback's action at the end as being heroic and, um, that he's, he's martyring himself.
0: Right. Um, I just, I love the fact that we have a 25 million dollar, toby hooper movie and i i I lament the fact that i feel like it was misunderstood for so long i think scream Factory's blu-ray helped oh yeah i think time has helped i just think his movies needed time for people to sort of catch up to what he was doing and he has even said you know um that he wished that all along they had left the title alone and called the movie space vampires because gosh that tells you exactly what movie it is not just what it's about but right the and tone of the movie he says in the interview
2: that Golan and Globus had a specific uh, objection to that title because it was too much like the movies they were already making right and they were spending 25 million dollars to <laughs> to change that perception but again because I was joking about that at the beginning of this segment Space Vampires is an excellent movie title. Yes. And although they pay lip service to life force, in fact, during the scene where one of the characters says it several times in several sentences, it like you might as well have a red light flashing on the screen and indicating that this is a last minute rewrite because we have to get the word life force right. into this right. screenplay some way.
0: They're literally right now on eBay, and I'm, I'm putting this out there in the world, and somebody's going to go snatch it up, and that's fine. Um, is John Dykstra's crew jacket from oh, yeah. this movie. You had pointed that out. With the original Space Vampires title still on it.
2: It's reasonably
0: affordable for <laughs> what it is. And Christmas is coming. True. Uh, I've never spent $300 on any piece of clothing, I don't think. I wonder...
2: Uh, there's a joke there, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I'm
0: wondering what size it is. I think it's an extra large. I think it says it in the picture. Hmm. I don't know. Um, Yeah, just, you know, I watch life force and I think of John Hammond in Jurassic park saying spare no expense and my God, they didn't. And somebody gave Toby Hooper all this money and all these resources to make this insane movie, and we are better for it. You have to agree that the money's on the screen. Yes, absolutely. Um,
2: the special features of the Blu-ray, which, if you haven't seen it, you, you need to buy yeah, it and see yeah. it. And there's a new really uh, terrific.
0: 4K scan of it, too. The Screen Factory just put out a steelbook version with a new 4K scan.
2: Oh, well, there's another... Yeah. there's more money out of my wallet um there's a featurette about how uh john dykstra and john melee did a lot of the special effects that's delightful there was an amusement park in england that had this very elaborate model of london and they used that for the miniatures creating their own buildings that would be on fire or blowing up but it's like oh this nine tenths of this has been built for us already which is cool because it reminded me of that thing in um Hot Fuzz, that the town has that little play town where that one chase happens I don't in. remember. Oh, well. Sorry. And that has nothing to do with Hooper. Um, I brought cookies. Yes. Uh, my wife made you. Thank you. I'm going to pass right now. Just, okay. I don't want to, but go We'll ahead. have these for the rest of the Yeah, game. yeah, yeah. They're Dr. Pepper cookies yes. in honor of Toby Hooper <laughs> with blood spattered frosting, also in honor of Toby Hooper. And they're very, very good. And I've already tweeted out what they look like. Yes, so thank finally.
0: you. Thank you. At some point, I will try to retweet that or put it on Instagram mm. or do social media things that I don't know how to do and can't right now. because Toby Hooper made great movies and he inspired <laughs> great cookies. <laughs> um, oh, I just had something else about Life Force that I wanted to say and now I forgot. I, I know when I saw it as a kid, it went over my head. Um, and it wasn't probably until my second viewing, I want to say I bought the, you know, DVD in the late nineties and that was, I think that second viewing was where it clicked. And it was specifically because of all the sort of apocalyptic stuff in London that I was watching and thinking, well, any movie that earns this, that has gotten to this point, uh, you know, in a way that sort of makes sense is worthy of my affection.
2: And I would also argue if you had never heard anyone talking about the film. Yes. If you came to it completely fresh and you were watching it and you're a person with a reasonable knowledge of film history, no one in that situation could watch this film and not say, uh, Toby Hooper's doing Hammer. Yeah. This is his version of a Hammer film. Yeah. And it's the performances, it's the sets, it's the tone. Yep. In some ways, it's the music, which I would argue is pretty hard to... To get you to that place yes. without nudging you or having some sort of explicit signifier. Yes. It's a $25 million hammer film. In fact, can you imagine um, the the one doctor who has to run through all the glass doors? Yes. Um, if he had been able to get Christopher Lee for that? Right. That,
0: that's a Christopher or Lee Or as part. the Frank Finlay part, although I love frank finley so (laughs) much that i wouldn't want him replaced and i'll uh, watch frank finley because i'm a natural voyeur oh my gosh just uh, it's so much fun anyway um i'm gonna play some audio we have some uh special messages recorded by some friends of the podcast and people who just wanted to participate in today so i'm going to play one of those and a little bit of music and when we come back we are going to be joined by Elric Kane and Brian Sauer of the Pure Cinema Podcast, and we're going to be talking about Salem's Lot. And I'm
2: going to go home and listen to the rest of the podcast. Yes. A time. And um, thank you. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you very much. It helped to have you here for uh, the first hour. And uh, I'm Mr. Wake Up. You brought cookies, and we got to talk about Life Force, so uh, it was awesome. Thank you very much. By the way, eat the cookie. Do not insert it into your my energy center. Your energy center. They go. In I keep your, trying to do it in the heart, and then, you then I will forget. Enjoy
2: it more if the cookies are in your mouth. Keep <laughs> cookies and sharp objects
0: away from your energy center. <laughs> anyway, we will be back in just uh, a few minutes. Thanks again, J Bone.
3: Good morning. (laughs) Well, you get it. I mean, you know, he's from Chicago and it's the morning. Hey, yo, here we go to the clip. This, hi, this is Mike Delaney from the Splat House podcast. First of all, thank you, Patrick, for inviting some of us on uh, the show to wax on a bit about uh, Mr. Hooper. We could not do so as eloquently and lovingly as you, but um, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share a few things that I love about Mr. Hooper. Also, hi... Uh, Mick Garris and Caroline Williams I have to say both your first and last name because I, I well I assume you're both doctors but I didn't Wikipedia it so I don't know for sure if you uh, have your PhD in Toby Hooper loving but uh, in in my heart I I know that that degree would be granted so uh, the horror uh, podcast community in the F This Movie family you guys you guys are fucking awesome look I'm I'm here for a very specific reason it's and it might sound I super stupid because uh, I have the voice that I have and I have the brain that I have. So I know that uh, I am at... I'm capable of sounding like a fucking idiot. But uh, one thing I wanted to say about uh, Toby Hooper, a man that I love. Look, if we're on this show today, obviously we love Toby Hooper. So I don't need to sit here and say, oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, Salem's Lot. Oh, Poltergeist. Or hey, let's do a deep cut. The Fun House. I don't need to do that shit. You guys, you guys know that. I get it. By the way, eaten alive is my favorite uh, of of the non you know big three. But what what I want to say is that Toby Hooper and I believe this in my heart. I believe that Toby Hooper is a tastemaker in pop music. And you're sitting there, you're like, eh, Toby Hooper is a tastemaker. Mike, there, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre didn't even have a soundtrack. Then look, no, hey, here's the thing: uh, like a solid year. Before Michael Jackson drops his iconic thriller featuring Vincent Price and directed by John Landis with all that great Rick Baker uh, makeup effects, a, a, a solid year or you know year and a half before that, a one Mister Billy Idol hires Toby Hooper and check this out Toby Hooper gets his original Texas Chainsaw Massacre cinematographer Daniel Pearl to shoot. A video for the—it's not even an original song for Billy Idol, but for his redux-ish, you know, of "Dancing with Myself." You got you, well, you all know the song. Here, sing it for a second. Right, you right, you remember the song. So what I'm proposing is, but long before Michael Jackson dropped Thriller, Toby Hooper was on the forefront of fringe horror directors that were doing big MTV shit at at the beck and will of pop music superstars such as Mr. William Idol. I would also go as far as to say that based on MTV numbers at the time the fact that this is a uh, uh, essentially a three-minute short film, I would say that based on its repeat value, the the way it even still shows up in retro clubs like these days, its DVD sales, uh, anywhere that Dancing With Myself, and you guys are still singing it in your head and you're going to have it stuck in your head for a fucking week, I would say that this is <laughs> probably one of Mr. Hooper's most well-known works. That people are not directly attributing to him. Now, when you look at the video for Dancing With Myself, you're going to see a lot of things. You're going to see the quintessential uh, Billy Idol, you know, looking exactly... Well, he based his... We we all know that Billy Idol based his look off Spike, James Marsters, from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1997. And he is, of course, most famous for his uh, cameo in 1998's The Wedding Singer, which will be uh, featured on How Do You Not Know... Uh, next episode, but we'll get to that later. But but Mr. William Idol is in in this video the most Billy Idol that he's ever been. I mean, we're talking Cindy Sherman, fucking uh, noir lighting while he's uh, doing his his super sexy like punk pop gyrating while zombies are uh, fucking encroaching upon him in this poco- post apocalyptic. Environment. I, I would also propose that this is most likely what we could have come to expect from a Return of the Living Dead directed by a, a Mr. Toby Hooper. Now, uh, I look, all I wanted to do is pop on the podcast today and bring this a little bit to your attention, uh, specifically around the fact that this is the first time, again, that Daniel Pearl and uh, Toby Hooper are working together since. Their most famous collaboration, and one, of the, obviously the most iconic. Look, I would say the most iconic horror film of all time, which is, uh, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a, it's a great reunion. It's right before uh, Mr. Hooper goes on to his incredible, uh, canon trilogy. It's right before Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Pearl goes right on to. The, one of the most illustrious careers as a cinematographer in pop music and music videos. So I think, you know, Hooper sent him on his way before he came back and did uh, feature film cinematography again with, get this, the remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And also this year. Uh, check it out. Uh, Daniel Pearl did the cinematography for all your, all y'all favorite with um, Nicolas Cage, Mom and Dad. Anyway, I, I digress. Look, I just want to say that I love Patrick and everyone at uh, F This Movie. I love Mr. Garris, Miss Williams, all my friends that are contributing to the show today. But I would like to think that he's dancing with George and Wes and all the legends uh, that came before him. And I love you, Toby. I love you, Patrick. I love all of you guys. Um, thank you for letting me <laughs> talk for a couple minutes and listen, listen to your independent podcasts. All right. Uh, there's a lot of us doing some fun work out there and we would love to have your ears.
0: back. Um, That was obviously the theme from Salem's Lot. I am now attempting to, bear with me everyone, this is live, Uh, I'm attempting to call up two of my favorite podcasters, two of my favorite people on the planet, Um, when I decided that I was going to do this. These were uh, two of the first guys that I wanted to include. Um, And you know them as the hosts of the my computer is moving incredibly slow. Um, the hosts of the Pure Cinema Podcast, um, as well as the host of. Uh, I'm doing too many things at once. So, Brian Hello. Sauer. Hi, Brian. Uh, the host, uh, co host of the Pure Cinema Podcast, as well as the host of Just the Discs. And now also Skyping in the co-host of Pure Cinema, as well as uh, one of the hosts of the Shockwaves podcast, Mr. Elric Kane. Elric, are you there? Hello. Hi, guys. Thanks for being up early to do this.
4: Yeah, of course.
0: (laughs) Um, So we had decided, you know, I said, all right, well, what movie do you guys want to talk about when we talk about Toby Hooper? And the decision was made to talk about Salem's Lot, which was you know, his big sort of mainstream follow-up to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He made this after uh, Eaten Alive and this was sort of his big breakthrough um, in in Hollywood, sort of. Um, you know, he had already had Spielberg's attention uh, because of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that was sort of what got him poltergeist, but Salem's Lot was a big, big commercial break for him. So um. What was it about, you know, when I said, okay, what movie do you want to talk about? You guys said Salem's Lot. Why Salem's Lot?
1: I had a very clear purpose, like I do with everything, which was <laughs> which was it was the film I most wanted to rewatch. <laughs> Sitting on my shelf uh, on Blu-ray, it was the film of his I hadn't seen in a long time, and of his filmography, it's, I mean, it's definitely, for me, top three in terms of scariest films because, you know. Like, like all of us, we're all pretty much the same generation. Uh, You know, I think uh, I see Texas Chainsaw as the greatest horror film ever made. Like, there's not nothing even really comes close to me when we have when I have that conversation with people. I think it stands alone in what it was able to do. And then I think for me personally, Poltergeist was the scariest film of the 80s. It's the film that, you know, most disturbed me as a as a child. And then I come to this film and go, wow, so he also made the scariest thing ever made for television. I mean, that's pretty remarkable with just three of his films. Uh, so I wanted to kind of revisit it because so much of it's wrapped up in Kinder Trauma moments. <laughs> and you're, you kind of want to remember if those still hold up. It's probably been about a decade since I'd seen it. Um, so that was my, from my perspective, uh, you know, if I was pushing Brian. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I was, was I? <laughs> I?
4: I was open. I was open. You know, I, I like a lot of his movies. And I was kind of like, boy, this is actually a tough thing to pick. So uh, when Elric was like, yeah, let's do this, I was like, that sounds perfect. And I, I'm i totally with you, Alric, in that Poltergeist was a big deal to me and a big kinder trauma movie for me. And I guess I, I was excited to look at this movie again from the point of view of like, oh, this movie, Poltergeist messed me up as a kid. And here's the movie he made before that that probably messed up a lot of kids in the late 70s. And I, I just like that he's responsible for a lot of childhood trauma. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I and I think what you're saying about um, you know his career kind of becoming legit at a certain point in terms of like uh, craft. This is the movie. I mean, it's it's awesome that Spielberg had already noticed him because it shows his eye for talent. But this is the film where I'd, I'd kind of forgotten just how classically. Constructed it was. And, you know, you could certainly think if you had only seen Chainsaw Masker and Eden Alive, you could literally believe that a maniac was responsible for those <laughs> movies because they're so unhinged, you know, in all the right ways. And then you watch this movie and go, oh, wow, this is, uh, you know, this is an homage to Hitchcock. This is a, a cinephile at work. This is, cl- you know, classical film form especially because the movie relies so little on editing. It's really relying on camera moves and technique to reveal things, which is just not what I, I guess I would normally have thought of when I, when I think of his work. And so I, I could totally see why this film you know, radically could shift uh, the kind of gigs he could book, because it, it really just feels like you could do anything. It's just so well modulated in terms of, uh, I think, performance casting and tone. Uh, yeah, it, it really it was quite a – it was a nice revelation leading up to watch this again from an adult perspective, I've got to say.
0: This feels like to me – and this is one of the – one of his movies that I've probably seen the least, I think just because of the length, honestly, kind of keeps me away mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, but to me, it's one of the less – Sort of identifiably Toby Hooper movies. And I don't know if that's because so many of his other movies, you know, he developed all the way through or because, you know, this is really a case. And Poltergeist is its own unique thing because of the sort of collaborative aspect of it. But this is a case where he's really just out to serve the material um, and make, you know, as you said, a, a sophisticated and very scary movie. I love the fact that he leads with let's make this as scary as possible for TV. Um, Because, you know, he'll do another King. And I I, I don't think it's just because it's an adaptation. He had done adaptations uh, later in his career. And he even does a Stephen King adaptation much later in his career with the mangler. But that is a Toby Hooper, Toby Hooper movie through and through. And Salem's lot is less identifiably. So, because I don't think he brings as much of his sort of crazy sensibility to it as much as he does. Elric, as you said, like his, understanding of the form
1: yeah i think he's i think it is still completely a hooper film but you're totally right it's not on the surface as much it's like something that one of my favorite terms i've ever heard (laughs) was saying mcgarris used to describe toby and that's a red humor yes which which is just my favorite term like that that i've discovered in recent years and so it's so black that it turns red uh (laughs) and and i think it's not as apparent in this i think the humor uh is definitely you know compared to something like chainsaw 2 right where it's a whole film made up of that uh that sense of humor but i do think it's there and i do think it's there in the characterization of certain how the how the townsfolk play off each other i definitely think it's there in james mason's character uh straker who is just a i mean it's a great performance it's it's so cool that he was uh, mason was so up to doing this kind of um you know slave to evil uh character towards the uh, later part of his career but so I, i think it's there i just think i think he was so probably um just really focused on making the best scariest movie he could yeah. I feel like it's, it's your personality is just getting in there and I think a big part of it is something that you know directors uh, don't often get all the credit they should but one of the most important parts is you know Woody Allen or anyone would say is, is casting and I think this film is so well cast uh, you know to me I'm, I'm watching Castle Rock right now and I, I like it but this world that he has in this is my favorite, like world of King. It feels like what I want that that town to feel like, you know. Um, but yeah, just this is so so a tribute to cinema. I mean, I think people don't talk about how big a cinephile he was enough but i mean if you go through uh the cast here and just some of the things they've done i mean even you know the the little things like uh you know finding alicia cook jr uh and is it mary windsor you know to play married exes in this film and they were married in stanley kubrick's the killing it's like oh what a you know not, people like us watching this movie are never going to get that reference necessarily on the surface, but it's something he found and that he you know was trying to bring out uh there's- just, there's just so many people in, in kind of small roles here. I think the biggest one for me that gets me excited is is Reggie nalder as you know Barlow, which is you know a creature design that we all think about and is a, probably a big kinder trauma moment for most of us but but what people don't realize is unlike grandpa which you know which is also terrifying to me uh when i was young but grandpa's being played by you know a 20 year old uh which is you know once you find that out it's a little less creepy but uh you know reggie nalder was scary i mean i I think he's one of the scariest looking actors i've ever seen on screen in uh, hitchcock's the the man who knew too much as the assassin and i always think about that character in hitchcock's work and then here he is so he's probably like 72 playing an ancient vampire rat like nusra and that to me is interesting because I feel like he brings all that into the physicality of the of the uh, Barlow character, especially when he grabs the kid and you know grabs him uh, in the kitchen scene uh, after killing his parents. It's it's just something about it that I think he brings that experience. So uh, you know, I think I think and there's you know a lot of Hitchcock in this movie. Definitely, you know, the most of anything uh, Toby did, in my opinion.
4: Yeah, I'm with you, Alric. In terms of the um, it demonstrating his uh sort of history as a fan of cinema you know obviously the the barlow character is really iconic and i was just listening to another podcast about the book versus the movie and i guess that barlow character is not like he was in the book so clearly toby is taking um in in my thinking like a piece of cinema history and putting a nosferatu vampire into his you know stephen king adaptation along with the uh, Marie Windsor and Alicia Cook Jr. Elijah Cook Jr. thing. And, yeah, I, I I also love the James Mason character. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie has him um, sort of squaring off with one of my favorite character actors who's in one of our favorites, *Alric* chili scenes of winter, and that's Kenneth McMillan, who plays the sheriff. Um and also, uh, just,
1: the 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 uh, Baron in uh, Lynch's Dune, and he's terrifying. Oh my he, gosh, he's so grotesque. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, he's he's great in that, and he's an actor I think that came to acting late, but I love him in everything that he's ever been in. You know, including Armed and Dangerous and what what have you. But they have a great scene where he's just sort of feeling out James Mason, and and kind of um, I don't know. It's it's just the way that they're sort of uh, going at each other. I just like the combination of an old-school, basically 80s character actor, although he did do work in the 70s, and a classic film star like Mason. It's just like the meeting of two different kinds of giants that you almost never see because a lot of those older actors were not working when some of these 80s character actors were uh, in their prime. Um, so for me, that's, that's like some kind of a, a, a super awesome a little meeting of two awesome actors that I don't normally see. So I love that scene.
1: And we get a lot of scenes like that in this movie. I feel like we get a lot of character actors squaring up against each other. And and he, he spends a lot of time setting up the town and setting up the character's I think which is important for us to get a feeling for like why this town like you watch a movie like this you go okay why are ancient evil descending upon a small town in America it's like I feel like it's because no one will notice you know it's there there's all these like romantic entanglements in this town and uh, reasons for people to maybe disappear or uh, you know kill their uh, wife's lover and he <laughs> he has time to explore all that in three hours which is awesome you know and it's so much fun especially when it's Fred Willard oh <laughs> gosh that's so good it's so kind of good. Goofy, but, uh, but I would say one thing about what what Brian was just saying about you know the vampires being different than the book. It's like there were so many movies coming out with you know Dracula characters who were speaking and romantic at this time. I think it's I think this is a huge contribution to horror at this moment. Like to to stray away from what could have easily expelled the evil just as soon as barlow would have opened its mouth it, you know instead they've got this thing that has to be spoken for by james mason no less and then when it appears it just it's completely creepy it holds all the mystery of what it can be it looks like a demon rat it doesn't look like a tradition i mean it looks nosferatu but but also with a twist and it makes this whole thing very um Uh, unromantic and i think our visions of vampires we just did a vampire episode recently on shockwaves and you know so many of them are are about romanticism and eternal life and all these things that all of us kind of like the idea of flirting with but this movie's more like they're rats spreading a plague from town to town (laughs) it's kind of gross you know there's not not a single positive moment in this movie about vampirism yeah not a single moment everyone is affected and looks miserable and sad and worse than they did before. And that, I can't think of that in any other kind of vampire film at that time. It
0: kind of takes, you know, Hammer took sort of the, the seductive Count Dracula and turned it, especially early on with Christopher Lee, it kind of turned it into this more of just like a monster, but he's still handsome. He looks like Christopher Lee, right? He doesn't really talk much and he's just kind of this awful savage, but he still is seductive because he looks like Christopher Lee. And it takes that and sort of strips away, even all of the, the handsomeness and the seductive qualities and just, yeah, it turns it into this beast that we really had never seen before. And, um, again, the fact that he was able to do this on network TV, I think is so fascinating because I know there's a lot of, you know, seventies TV movies that people hold very fondly in their memories and that, you know, TV movies were a lot scarier, so you know, in the the seventies trilogy of terror, night or whatever. Um, But I feel like Salem's Lot just takes, really just took everything to a whole different level. Um, I have never seen the shorter
1: European cut. Have either of you?
4: I, I don't think so.
1: Okay, I, unless it was on you know, unless ironically it played on TV in New Zealand when I was. I guess, anything's <laughs> possible. Ironically, uh, everything gets cut up. But uh, you know what you just said is really interesting, though, because uh, you know the theater of the mind, right? Which is something all of us, you know, have always confused with chainsaw or or Halloween. In Carpenter's case, which is thinking we saw. You know, with thinking, we saw the hook go in the back uh, in Chainsaw, or anything anything that really involved a lot of bloodshed. That is, our mind definitely remembers seeing, even though it never existed. Is exactly why I guess he's the perfect person to have directed this movie for television. Because I mean, everything that happens in this film, you feel like you're seeing much worse things than you actually are. Uh, and the way the way he uses the camera to reveal things in this movie, like Barlow just popping up, yeah. it's terrifying. And and it cuts out to commercial breaks. You can tell when things are fading, and it doesn't really matter that you don't keep seeing the scene because by that point, you're probably you're already kind of got the ebgb's. You know, it's 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 really perfect for young people, but it also the people being scared the most in the film are actually adults besides the couple scenes with the kids. There's so many scenes of adults actually being terrified uh, and, and non-believers who suddenly believe that I think that works even to scare young people even more, you know, because you're seeing the adult world crumble around you. It's, it's, I don't know, I think it's kind of genius to cast him uh, as the director of this film and it really works.
4: Yeah, and he, I, I obviously we can talk about it specifically, but that, the scene of the kid's scraping the window is it's still still haunting to this day still super creepy and so i can't imagine being a kid in 1979 and seeing that on tv i mean that would that would mess you up for good (laughs) that's really messed up you know what's funny is i i actually had a chance to work with brad savage um uh, the actor who plays one of the kids that is scraping the window uh he's the second Window yeah. scraper, as it were.
1: The brother, the uh, older brother,
4: yeah. The older brother, yeah. He was in the uh, he was in some Disney stuff. He was in Apple Dumpling Gang and Return to Witch Mountain and stuff. And um, I wish I could remember the stories, but he, I, I was able to talk to him a little bit about the like harness thing that they used to film that. And mm. however Toby does it, and he does it really well. I mean, no, part of it is filming backwards so that the smoke is going backwards and the movements are a little weird, but what the things that he does for that scene i just think he's made one of the most iconic horror images uh, certainly of television movies of the 1970s but i think of the 1970s in general like that's just really hard to forget
1: yeah, nothing takes you out quicker than seeing the wires, right? And he doesn't use wires. <laughs> he, he did that on purpose. Like I, I love that he always is that's what I mean by like that's kinda of why I'm glad we're talking about him as Cinephile because of, you know, obviously our show. Uh but but I, I see a guy who like knows what takes him out of a movie, knows what gets him into a movie, knows what scares him, knows what he would have hated as a kid. And he just puts that in the movie, and that's why I do think it's a personal movie for him. Like, it doesn't feel, even though it might feel less his personality, I think maybe it's more his taste and interests are still coming out in everything you're seeing. And uh, you're right, that sequence is amazing. The scene that really got me now as an adult, and would have scared me, I'm sure, when I was young, but it's definitely the Jeffrey Lewis, you Mm. know, once he changes, and he's sitting there just going, you know, look at me, look at me, teacher. it. Again, it's this makeup in their eyes, and it. It's depressing. It's like, oh, becoming a vampire sucks, like in this version. <laughs> you know, it's like there's nothing cool about it. In fact, it's so bad that you actually go after the person you cared about right. and try to hurt them. And you are trying to, you know, this, this teacher who had made, made a great impact on this town, now you're messing with him. And I, I, I don't know. It's, yeah, there's, there's definitely, you definitely feel the draining of life from the people in the town. And, you know, uh, on that level, I think it kind of stands alone as a modern vampire film.
4: Yeah, you're right in terms of that. I hadn't even thought about it, but there is a sense of like um, camaraderie of misery and enslavement and some form of personal hell for these people that's that's being enacted and spread through the town that is a little tonally different um, than a lot of vampire movies I can think of. So that's, that's pretty cool, especially for a late 70s film.
1: Yeah, one thing oh, – sorry, Pat. No, go ahead. One thing I was going to say we haven't brought up that I just had never thought about because it's been so long since I saw the movie, but was that he's also not just making a vampire film. This is just like totally a haunted house movie, and I think that works really well because uh, well, also has connections to Chainsaw, which is also kind of feels at times like a haunted house movie. But uh, everyone can identify with that, and not everyone can identify with a vampire movie or a van- in your small town that time you thought you had a vampire next door until years later with Fright Night. Here, everybody who's ever lived in a small town has had a house that felt like it was a haunted house. And I think so starting it as a haunted house movie that then evil descends into to me is just really unique. It's actually a, a fun blending of, drama, of genres. And I think it's really cool to have an adult male writer who's coming back to a town who's still scared from this memory of being a kid about this house itself uh, without knowing anything about Barlow or anything about a vampire. And I think that's a, that's a fun switcheroo that I just totally forgotten that element of it. This
0: is something that I've written about when I've talked about Toby before, and I'm sure I'll bring it up many times through the course of today, but You know, one of the major themes that sort of runs throughout his work is this thing that Stephen King identified in, uh, Don's Macabre when he was talking about some of the different archetypes of horror. And one of them that he talks about is this idea of the bad place and the bad place is usually, you know, used to identify a haunted house. It's sort of just a general archetype. And in almost every Toby Hooper movie, there is a bad place, um, and a lot of times there's even like a bad place within the bad place. So here it's the house, but then within that, there's also, you know, Barlow's sort of crypt underneath. Um, so we have the bad place within the bad place. There's also the, in, uh, in most of his films, this idea of what is made very much literal in this movie, which is, you know, the, the familiar um, where we have the sort of human face that is sort of a front for the evil. So it's Kevin Conway for the monster in the fun house. It's Neville brand and the alligator in eaten alive. It's, you know, sort of the hitchhiker and Leatherface face in the original Texas chainsaw, sort of the one person who can go out in the world and function. And then back at the house, there's this other monstrous thing that never leaves. Um, and I just like how those two tropes that work their way into so much of his work are so, um,
1: so much the text here yeah and and in this case we get james mason (laughs) which you know you can't get better than james mason as your front right
4: yeah is there is patrick do you think there's like a, a frankenstein thing happening there kind of a you know the doctor is the the normal face and the monster is frankenstein is that a thing for him do you think or is it just more general evil place and face of you know
0: I mean, I I don't know for sure. I mean, Funhouse obviously certainly lends itself to that idea just because the monster is literally wearing a Frankenstein mask for most of the movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, possibly again. You know, that does speak back to his love of cinema and, in particular, you know, old films. He was a lover of of classic movies and Elric, as you and Psycho.
1: And Psycho, yeah, right. I um, mean, in this one, we have the house is very similar. It's right. been obviously designed to have a similar feel, but that's a film about a mask, right? Like, yeah. he's and different layers of, um, I don't in quote hell, you know, of the house itself, right? It's haunted, it's creepy. You walk around, but once you get to the basement and you reveal mother, that's a whole different la- layer uh, at the bottom uh, that I think is pretty similar to the construction of this.
4: I just love the story in the commentary that, toby was saying about how the house itself was actually built around another house
1: yeah or something like
4: i just think that's nuts that the whole time they were filming this i mean i think it only took them like three days or so maybe a little longer to do the exterior stuff of the house um and then obviously the interior set stuff but just the idea that they built uh, this psycho-ish house around another house (laughs) i just thought that was i don't know another layer to this movie that i think is really fascinating
1: and the interior is creepy. Like w- once they, not at the start. At the start it's just a basement and normal house. But once they actually in that last act, uh, once Bonnie Bedelia uh, and the boy are walking around the house, it's 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 production design is <laughs> pretty similar to Chainsaw Massacre. With you know bones and pieces of antler and and the color palette is you know very green and sickly and it's it feels like an infected home it's it's really it's really interesting um and but also something you're just talking about which is uh the face being kind of innocent uh the the person in, in this case james mason but i had totally forgotten the scene uh with ed flanders at the end you know where Straker lifts him up effortlessly and then yeah. impales him, yeah. and I was like that was such a great surprise because here's a guy you don't really assume had powers per se because he's not you know you haven't seen him as as an active vampire in any any way. So that leaves you wondering like what what was he? Obviously a Renfield type of uh, character, but uh, that that's just a really great surprising moment because of um, because of the front you see of this very polite British gentleman.
4: I just couldn't help but think about. Um, you know Fred Willard being like what sort of a real estate agent, I guess for the, <laughs> yeah. the town, and that he and James Mason at some point you know, made a deal for the house and like I, what what state of decay was it in when <laughs> James Mason like bought it or whatever? and did they do a walkthrough and what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> it was an did internet just- purchase. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was really amusing. And their scenes together, again, like uh, you know, basically a comic character actor in Fred Willard, like just scenes between James Mason and Fred Willard are worth the price of admission for me. I just love to see that kind of stuff.
0: Well, I love all of the, you know, you guys have mentioned a bunch of the different cast members and the cast is amazing, all these great character actors, but let me throw something out at you for the longest time until this rewatch. And I rewatched it this week and had a much better experience with this aspect of it. But for the longest time, I thought one thing that was holding the movie back a little bit or that I felt dated the movie more than anything else was David soul. Um, and I, just, ah. I was kind of like, ah, man, if it was anybody else in the lead, I feel like this would be such a stronger movie. Now rewatching it this time, I liked him a lot more. For some reason I was able to divorce myself from my own uh, prejudices against him as the leading man um against
4: starsky and hutch specifically i
0: guess i did not have (laughs) don't give up on us baby going through my head the whole time (laughs) just like a third of the time Um, and and so i I warmed to his performance a lot more Um, but i guess i just would be interested in hearing your guys thoughts on him specifically
4: you know it's funny when i was sorry okay uh i was gonna say when i was putting together my list of the cast that i love you know like um i didn't even put him on the list for whatever reason i'm like david soul and then i i didn't even know uh, at the time i was rewatching it i, I was never a big star uh hutch guy and so i didn't even think of why they cast him i guess it was one of those things where i'm like oh they just cast some and, and he was probably the most well-known person in the cast yeah. at that time which is weird to me again it's all about context and um you know tv in the 70s and but yeah, like he, I think he's fine. I think he's good. Um, but yeah, he just doesn't. He he isn't one of those because everybody else in the in the show I I know from other things. But you know, if I didn't know him from, from Starsky and Hutch, I I wouldn't have thought of him for this movie. I don't know what you thought of him, Larry.
1: Well, I I actually had the exact same um, feelings growing up as Patrick did about it. I always thought, ah, if this was just like a great cinema, Every Man would have been better until this viewing uh, this time i really liked him and i think um i think toby's direction is doing a lot for for him uh, there's like the one scene that i just really noticed this time and it's and it lent me to noticing all of the camera movements this movie uh, compared to i don't think i ever had seen the film in that light prior to this viewing is um when he first meets straker outside the house and he is just He's like sweating and quite hopped up, and you know from what I could ascertain, you know Toby had to really work him up into getting into a state of that. Uh, Toby would say that he would just act really unhappy on set to get everyone you know nervous and on on edge. It would be part of the way he would direct to try to get uh, get him into this place he needed. But when they first meet, it has this incredible. Uh, camera move that just goes from one side of the line and slowly crosses over in a very like it's not not an invisible move you know it's like you're really noticing the camera shifting from Mason over past Saul and there's all the silence between them and then Mason's just like good evening and walks away and and David Saul's just sweating and and looks scared and, and and I really felt his fear was palpable in this movie this time where coming into the story like that he's really scared to return he's like he's like I don't know if you've ever had that experience not fear going back to a town you grew up in, but just feeling a little weird and out of place because, you know, you've grown bigger and everything still seems small and you just it's a very kind of almost out of body uh, feeling. I definitely felt that in this. And so I think that's a big part of you know the casting and, and he looked right too, The thing about his hair and the glasses it, it all kind of made more sense to me now <laughs> than it did but but that problem is because he was a TV actor, and I think uh, that problem has uh, disappeared now in society because TV and movies the line is blurred now, but back then you know the same with Shatner at times where people it's just harder to see them because you're aware of their other work but right. no, I definitely definitely worked for me this time.
4: Yeah, and I I was going to say, I think because of the no context for me or not remembering him from Starsky, he was almost like an unknown actor, and that allowed me to connect especially to his sort of relationship with Bonnie Bedelia, who I think is amazing and really good in this movie, um, and really, I don't know, ultimately gives this sense of innocence that is so destroyed by the end of the movie that it 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 just plays into that sort of dread and i don't know not depression but you know whatever it is at the end of the movie that sort of drags everything down um it makes it feel like it would probably feel like to be taken over by and become a vampire but yeah i i just thought he was he has a sense of like distant melancholy to him that i think plays really well for that character that allows him to seem uh as driven as he is for a reason to do what he's doing um, and and having moments of, you know, enjoyment, hanging out with her. But ultimately there's just this underlying sadness there that I, I don't know. He just really sold it. That, that particular aspect.
0: Sold it. I see what you did. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah. As the movie goes on and, and he gets, you know, kind of darker and a little bit more unhinged, his performance was working, I think better for me. And again, I think part of it was because I just allowed myself to appreciate what he was doing and it wasn't held back by me thinking like, oh, he's miscast. Oh, this is the wrong guy, which I think has held me up on past viewings. And so just being able to look at what he's actually doing uh, and appreciate kind of the places that he takes the, the character. Um, I, I just, I really liked him a lot better this time. Um, I had this, I was like so excited to bring something up. Because I noticed something on this viewing. And then uh, last night, Elric, I went back and listened to the Shockwaves tribute that you guys did when Jared Rivet was on. And Jared's coming up next, everyone who's listening. Um, and he made this exact same observation. And I was brokenhearted because I was like, God damn it, Jared Rivet from a year in the past, you stole my thunder. Um, how much Fright Night owes to Salem's Lot?
4: Oh, big yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, small town
0: blue
1: collar, all that.
0: Yeah, just even moments. The 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 Bonnie Bedelia stuff is so reminiscent of Amanda Bierce in that movie. Um, Straker on the steps is essentially Jonathan Stark on the steps, and that that is the moment where, you know, that moment that you talked about, Elric, where he picks up. Uh, what's his name, and and, you know, impales him and it's like, holy shit, oh, there's a Uh, supernatural thing happening here that I didn't know about is the same as, you know, the first time I saw Fright Night and Jonathan Stark, I guess spoilers for Fright Night, everyone, Jonathan Stark gets shot and starts melting into this weird thing and it's like, oh, this guy has been something else this whole time and I didn't realize it, you know, the movie didn't necessarily indicate that he was also supernatural Um, I thought even that kind of reveal reminded me you know, the two movies kind of reminded me of one another.
1: Yeah, that's that yeah. great um, quote. It's not where you lift it from; it's where you lift it to. And yeah. I think if you if you steal something and make something similar to it tonally, it's a problem. But when you take the, such a tonal shift, uh, I mean, because obviously Salem's Lot's also borrowing a lot from the you know the vampire subgenres on Haunt House. So I think it's just it, then Tom Holland takes it in a totally different direction. But you can take those same things, but then they return it to a romanticized vampire, which right. is a big shift. Right. Yeah. You know.
4: Um, I was going to say, along the lines of the David Soule thing, um, I don't know what you guys thought of Lance Kerwin in this movie. I-, I think he's a really interesting young actor that most known for the TV show James at 15, which was like kind of a breakthrough show when it came out because it was addressing a lot of um, heavy-duty issues for teens, and he was the star of the show. And he, like David Soule, brings, like, a soulfulness if you will <laughs> uh to the performance and i do like that the movie opens with the two of them in like guatemala or something uh i can't remember where it is in the beginning but then we flash back two years right and i always like that sort of it's a very simple thing but like how do these two because then you see the two characters encounter each other and they clearly don't know each other and you're like oh how are they going to become in entangled um and i think Kerwin is like a really strong young actor and brings, again, something unclassifiable for me to that part. And I think that 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 could easily be uh, a problematic spot for the movie is to have this this kid who, I don't know, is distracting or annoying or something, uh, but I feel like he really brings it and has some emotion there that is almost beyond his years in terms of, what he's able to express, I think that's what I've always liked about him.
1: You mean a more annoying, like, Bob? Bob. <laughs> exactly. Bob. Like there will be no Bob um, blaspheme. There will be no Bob references. Uh, <laughs> no, we can reference I, I do him. love that movie, though. Don't don't worry. I love the movie. Um, no, I'd say the thing about Lance Kerwin is uh, it must be one of the earliest examples of a horror fan on screen as yeah. a character. And you think about what that does to your audience—the people who are watching this movie when they're fifteen or fourteen with monsters, uh, you know, toys and and kits in their room. I mean, I think as Ryan on Shockwaves who mentioned like that was the first time he had seen. Somebody like I want my room to look like that, <laughs> you know. Uh, went, you know, to his dad or whatever, and it's like that's true. It's it's like obviously, you, you know, years later in Friday Five, and you know, there's other examples of a of a protagonist who was a horror fan and used it. Morgan to their Stewart coming home, mm-hmm. yeah. But this one, this one's really interesting because he's. No, you're right. You know, he's I don't know. He's, and of course, that doesn't help his cause, because then his parents, you know, just think it's his active imagination and is running away with him. Hey, this is a, these are interesting movies where especially ensemble movies like this, where you're like, oh, you could also see a version of this that just focused squarely on that kid. Right. The whole movie from his point of view, not not the writer coming home and you'd have a very different film. Um, but as it is, yeah, they, they almost look related. Uh, yeah, that's David the soft. other
4: thing. Yeah. So the subtle little thing.
0: I really like him. I think he has that really cool kind of haunted quality, especially later on. And I love, um, speaking of monster kids, you know, on screen, uh, Toby Hooper's very next movie, the Funhouse. the younger brother in the Funhouse is very much yeah. a monster kid. Um, but it's like a reference to open. Well, yeah, for sure. And, and he doesn't really get involved in the story. He kind of remains outside the story the entire time, unlike, uh, Jacob Kerwin here, who, you know, becomes a part of the story. But one of the things that I love about a lot of Toby Hooper movies, and this is a sentence, obviously, that I'll say a lot today, um, is that, you know, where they they end up in a crazy place. They almost always end up in a place where you couldn't have necessarily imagined it from the first 15 minutes. And, you know, we see a lot of movies and we're kind of conditioned to expect how things are going to play out sometimes even just based on the premise of a movie it's kind of like yeah i know what the beats are but sometimes it's just about how do they execute those beats uh that can elevate a movie for us it doesn't always have to surprise us in terms of where it goes um but almost every toby hooper movie just again takes us to a a crazy place you know we were just talking about life force nobody could imagine where life force would end (laughs) up from based on the beginning of that movie um and what i like about what he does in salem's lot is that he sort of he inverts that by opening, Brian, as you pointed out, at the end, um, so that instead of having that moment at the end of the film where you're watching, you know, London devolve into a crazy zombie apocalypse and saying, well, How did we get here? Um, we're opening the movie with that moment. We're opening the movie asking ourselves that question, Well, how do we get here? And then the rest of the movie, we're asking ourselves, Yeah, but. But how do we get to Guatemala? Like, what is going to happen here that's going to take us to that place? Um, and I love the way that he kind of inverts that about his own work in Salem's Lot.
4: Yeah, definitely. No, uh, that's, that's definitely one of my favorite things in movies is the idea of how do we get there from here? And uh, the movies that do it best are the ones directed by, you know, assured storytellers like Toby, for sure.
1: And it could have been a a choice for television, too, to make sure he didn't lose the audience, you know, to make sure they, again, it's a Hitchcock reference, you know, Hitchcock's uh, an example I tend to always show uh, young people is, you know, with the opening of Rear Window, they show you everything you need to understand about the the whole movie in that first. I think it's about two and a half minutes. Just the camera points to it, but then then the phone rings and they reiterate everything on a phone call, which to <laughs> me is a real bummer. Like it's kind of boring. But then if you read interviews with Hitchcock, it's because uh, he wanted to make sure no one missed the ride, so he knew how to make a movie in the way a uh, David Lynch would make it you know, with abstractions and hoping that the audience will get it. But he also didn't want to take the risk. And I feel like with this, uh, you know, I think Toby wanted to make sure everyone. Got this movie. They all they all could go for the entire ride because his other things. What you're hitting on is like one of my favorite things about horror. Probably my favorite. It's not a genre, a subgenre, but just the idea of nightmare cinema. It's cinema that unfolds by its end into nightmare, and he set the bar, you know, of what that is with chainsaw because uh, it's unending. But I think all his films have elements of that uh, where it's just super dangerous, where you end up and you don't feel comfortable or safe anymore. And it's definitely one of the appeals of his work, you know, too too much. You know, when thinking about Toby as an artist, like obviously him and Romero passing close together is is hard because I, I view of all the guys involved in horror from this period including a lot of our favorites you know whether it's carpenter or craven i think these two had the biggest impact on culture itself Uh, not just not just horror culture but just pop culture and culture with you know their their uh, early films so it's uh i know it's and and i think what gets rewarded too much maybe in um, filmmaking is consistent patterns and Always like you know Kubrick, you know it's it's very consistent from film to film, you know exactly visually who made it, but with like Hooper, there's something about that um having an eclectic filmography like that it's it's it shows like constant risk and and trying something totally different each time and yet still putting your personality and I find that really interesting in his work it's it's something that is harder to peg, but you can you know you still you still get so many uh, pieces of them,
4: yeah, and I was just thinking. You know, Patrick, you were talking a little bit before about evil and his films and stuff. And, and I was thinking about how he is so able to carry off this impression of, you know, there's evil in the world. And it's it's a really dark evil. You know, like, I guess I'm thinking of, like, certain slasher movies. I don't get a necessarily larger sense of evil outside of this isolated incident. But I feel like Toby can bring it to his movies even when they're smaller, when they're about a small town or about a carnival or whatever, that there's a sense of like, you know, the opening of Pandora's box of, like, this is just scratching the surface of the evil that is in the world. And uh, it's not just this place. Uh, The world can be a very evil place. And it's just sort of reminding you that and sort of tapping into the very... Um, sort of the most subconscious things that horror can do as far as really rattling you and I think that uh, that was one of the reasons I may not have connected with his films initially um, and I connect more to them now as I think I have a greater understanding of his abilities in that arena and he I don't know there, there aren't too many filmmakers that could pull it off in the way that he, he does it's not like uh, trying to scar you but it's sort of like just keep this in mind Uh, and here's, you know, here's the world I'm presenting. I just always like that about him. Well,
0: and you know, you touched on something that I mentioned in the last hour, um, which is this idea of like, sometimes his movies take more than one viewing or perhaps just time to sort of sit with. And it's something that I've had echoed to me throughout the week from people talking about like, yeah, you know, I didn't, I admit I totally didn't get it at first, but now I'm kind of getting into it. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this obviously was not only because I'm such a, a a fan of him and his work, but also because I just feel like in all the conversations about the masters of horror, um, he gets, I think slighted the most. Um, and that was, you know, a really hard thing about losing him when we did, especially right after Romero, because I feel like both of them had just really, uh, they fought a lot of uphill battles. Um, You know, Romero, whatever. We can get into all that. But I think they both fought a lot of uphill battles. And I always felt like, in particular, Toby Hooper's work didn't get quite the respect that it deserved or that I would like to see it get, obviously, as as such a fan of him. But so how do you... I don't even, and I don't even know if you guys agree with me on that, but if that is true, if we accept that premise, then how do you sort of reconcile that with, Elric, what you were saying, which I agree with in terms of him having such an impact on the culture, but then not being taken as seriously as some of his contemporaries as a filmmaker –
1: well, unfortunately, you know, Hollywood is that you're as good as your last picture, which is total bullshit. You, you should be as good as your best picture, yeah. which would make him the greatest horror filmmaker of all time. <laughs> that's amazing uh, I mean, but, but, it, but it's true. It's true in that sense. Like that's such a bullshit cliche thing because like all, most of our favorite directors in their last decade of their lives are not operating at full capacity uh not necessarily that they aren't because they very well could be but often their opportunities aren't in the kind of work and this is the reason why tarantino keeps saying he's going to retire right He, he he cites these exact references because of the difficulties of uh getting movies made towards the end but so i think that's i think part of that might be coming from just what which is ironic in toby's case because toolbox Murders is actually would have been the other one i might have chosen to discuss today because uh, i've only seen it once but i was really impressed yeah. uh by that film in his letter, career i think it's actually quite scary and atmospheric and um I, I kind of am excited to revisit so i think it's i think it's tough like i said at the top i mean he's got three films alone that i think are you know the three of the scariest most effective you know best perhaps best horror film of the 80s perhaps definitely best film, horror film of the 70s best TV movie, you know, of all time, you know, horror-wise, I think. So that's, that's only in three of his films, and, you, and that's not even talking about the really out there, you know, sci-fi work. And so I don't know why, why it is. I, I mean, maybe it's a reticence to talk about uh you know he's obviously a shy kind guy and maybe maybe sometimes that um you know the it's the braggarts who get re- remembered i don't know I, th- I think in horror most of the guys are kind of like that though like romero obviously didn't overly talk about himself and wes craven was a similar kind of personality so and it could just be our point of view from you know we're all definitely in horror bubbles so we know i don't know what people outside of a horror bubble wouldn't think about him you know, or or what? How much of his work they would really know besides the you know the big tent poles? Right. Um, so it's 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 a hard one to answer. I, I think it will keep changing. I think good releases of his work are going to change this picture too. Like even Chainsaw Two coming out through Screen Factory release, I think really helped in uh, Life Force. Obviously, uh, you know, I think it changes the way people uh, see those films. I don't know, Brian. What do you think?
4: yeah no absolutely i i do i i can't account for it I can't account for why he doesn't get the respect that he deserves and maybe it is something to do with a certain introversion that he had as a person um I don't know but yeah i mean I think since his death i've I've gone back to a lot of things and i'll I'll say that i myself am guilty of underrating him a little bit and taking him for granted and i I feel bad about it um but yeah, like, I'm just coming across thematics and sort of deeper things in his work that I I can't really attribute to a lot of other, like you said, Patrick, masters of horror. Uh, he's just, there's something else going on there. And, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, he'll continue to grow in the esteem of, you know, horror fans and and people who just appreciate a good filmmaker you know in in the years um in you know now and and as we go on,
0: yeah, I guess you know again, that's part of why I continue to beat the drum, he just seems to me to be a filmmaker who's I, I I wouldn't call them misses, but I recognize that a lot of people feel like some of his crazier movies or some of his later movies are misses. A movie like The Mangler, where they're kind of like, eh, you know, I, it didn't work for me, uh, whatever. Um, so they'll call him misses, and I feel like those are held against him. More so than some of his contemporaries, for whatever reason, that people don't mention Carpenter and be like, Yeah, but Memoirs of Invisible Man, what's up with that? You know, it's we just go to the greats. And I hope that, uh, I hope that that, you know, starts to happen with, with Toby Hooper as well, because as you guys have pointed out, I mean, look at how many great films he has and those are the ones that are just canonically great right i mean i think he has all these other great films that haven't yet quite reached the same level of success as a poltergeist or as a texas chainsaw um and that you know my life's goal is to try to elevate those movies
4: what yeah, are some of channel, those but... yeah sorry
0: no you good bro
4: i was just gonna what are some of those movies patrick that you think are not quite getting the recognition
0: i mean i do think some of the canon movies are you know the pendulum has started to swing a little bit um in terms of people recognizing that and scream factory has helped uh, as much as scream factory has done great by john carpenter's work and they have uh, they've also been really really great for toby hooper as well because they put out a bunch of his movies and their release of the Funhouse. house i'm hoping exposed it to a lot of people and helped um, not legitimize it, but I just think it was a movie that kind of flew under people's radar. They felt it was a little generic and as will come up many times. And I think I even recorded a thing for your show way back in the day about the Funhouse. It is my favorite Toby Hooper movie. Um,
4: it might be my favorite too. It's, it's really up there for me. Really and so up there. that's
0: a movie that I just would love to hear more people talk about or to really embrace the craziness of Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. I think you kind of still have two kinds of people in the world and there may always be, there are people who love that movie and there are people who just are not into that movie. There's no one really who thinks it's just okay. And that's part of what's special and wonderful about it, right? Is that it makes, it takes such big swings that yes, it is going to leave some people cold, but um, toolbox murders is a great example. Elric. That's a really late period movie that I think is so good at a time when I feel like a lot of horror fans even had sort of written him off. It was a remake. It was, I believe, a direct-to-DVD movie. And, well, when was the last good movie he made? And so a lot of people kind of dismissed toolbox murders. But Mm. that is a case of, like, a guy who has not lost a step and knows how to make a really scary,
1: crazy, kick-ass horror movie. And I hope that uh, that gets rediscovered well crafted too that's the, that's i i think maybe that could be one of the biggest Issues uh, that has hurt him, his reputation maybe is. I think people haven't looked back at his films, looking at the craftsmen yeah. in them. I think they look at the tone, and uh, I think he often is making films for cinephile uh, filmmakers, like especially things like Funhouse, and that I think people like us are drawn to it because it's so much fun and referential and playful. Whereas sometimes people just wanted a straight scare show, you know, especially at the time where those movies were coming out. Uh, you know, th- it's. Fun it's just funny what people remember i i I wanted to bring up well one thing you just mentioned about chainsaw one and two saying that there's two different types. if somebody asked me who is toby hooper you know why should i know about him i'd say toby hooper is chainsaw massacre one and two that is the between those two movies exists the person who is toby hooper i feel like both are different poles of what he's able to do what he's interested in doing and and a boring filmmaker would have just made a straight sequel right after, like he was asked to do. And he even wrote a script, I guess, with Milius, which I'd be curious to know what the tone of that was. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I can't imagine. But, but that would have been a normal filmmaker and and most filmmakers would have jumped at that probably and he didn't because he's got this other thing inside him that he had to express and i think number two is hilarious and it's crazy Mm -hmm. how far it pushes stuff and satirizes his own movie (laughs) he spends a whole movie satirizing the movie he made which is just totally fascinating but um there was one scene i wanted to bring up before i know we have to go uh in this film that i just hadn't thought about but that I kept thinking, I wonder if this helped him get poltergeist, but the scene where Barlow appears in the kitchen is basically a poltergeist sequence for about two and a half minutes until you realize it's a vampire you have no idea it's right. basically all the stuff flying around catch yeah. kitchen and there's no indication that this is a vampire moment at all it just feels like a scene right out of poltergeist and then of course uh, barlow appears under his uh, under you know black th- i thought that was really interesting i was like oh i could totally imagine being an executive watching that scene going oh yeah this guy's perfect you yeah. know it, it kind of ties in uh nicely but yeah i really th- i really think his his film's are yeah who he is i think he's being pretty truthful to the different sides of him he wanted to express
0: well all right i know we got to wrap up but um guys i know this is a busy weekend for you and a busy time for you but i can't tell you how much i appreciate you guys taking an hour and coming on i'm such a, a fan of both of you and your shows and uh, love talking movies with you guys so thank you both very much for being here oh
1: thanks Absolute for letting pleasure. us
0: yeah pleasure and an honor Everyone check out Pure Cinema. Everyone check out Just the Discs. Everyone check out Shockwaves. I'm sure anybody listening to this is already doing all three things. But for some reason, if you are not, please do. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm going to play another short thing. And up next will be the great Jared Rivet. Thanks again,
1: guys. Thank you. Thank you.